I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock-up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nah, hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew, grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm, sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get Shipped same-day delivery. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash hi. This is Outside In. I'm Sam Evans-Brown with producer Justine Paradise. And today we're starting with a tree, a tree with a name, Old Survivor. Oh, yeah. Um, It's funny. I was just over there the other day. Um, So Old Survivor is the name of an old growth redwood in the East Bay Hills that is um, the single remaining old growth redwood um, after these hills were logged. That's Jenny O'Dell. She's an artist and a writer, and she teaches at Stanford. Justine spoke with her about Old Survivor, a tree who Jenny has written about. I mean, of course, there's like second and third growth redwoods here, but um, that tree was not cut down because it was considered small by the standards of the redwoods at that time, which were huge because they were old growth. Um, And it was also um, a kind of a strange twisted shape. Before Old Survivor was rediscovered in 1969, it was thought that all of the old-growth trees in Oakland were gone. Also known as the grandfather tree, this redwood is around 500 years old. Old Survivor germinated before the Spanish invasion of South America, not long after Machu Picchu was completed in the Inca Empire, and just a few years before Queen Elizabeth I was coronated at Westminster Abbey. Jenny writes about how Old Survivor would have grown alongside generations of Ohlone people, living, getting old, dying. And in the 19th century, it would have kept growing as grizzly bears, coho salmon, and California condors disappeared from the East Bay. It's it's a witness. um, And what I find so amazing about that is 
it's not abstract. Like that tree is the same tree. Like it has a physical aura about it. Um, like you can put your hand on it and and know that it's been living for that entire time. Old Survivor appears in the introduction of Jenny's New York Times bestselling book, How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. The book is an exploration of how to withdraw our attention from the forces that would monetize it, like tech companies, for instance, but also work, and asks us to re-examine our participation in social media. Jenny is, of course, just one of many people examining these topics these days. But one thing that sets her book apart is her exploration of nature in relationship with our attention, our time, and our productivity, and the way she draws inspiration from the likes of Old Survivor. Jenny compares Old Survivor to a tree in a Taoist story attributed to the Chinese philosopher Zhuangzhou. In the story, a carpenter comes upon an old tree, which is gnarled, it's too big in the wrong ways, and he doesn't cut it down because it's not useful. But later, the tree comes to him in a dream and asks, Who are you to call me useless? Um, Kind of useful for what? And my uselessness has been very useful to me because I have survived. Um, and so this, the old survivor tree in Oakland happens to be almost like a real-life version of the useless tree. I, I just find it um, to be such an inspiring example of not only kind of refusal and resistance, but existing in a way that's a little bit at odds <laughs> with uh, the surrounding value system. Um, so there's obviously that creates tension Um, but it may also be what helps you survive. This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. Today's show, a conversation with artist and writer Jenny O'Dell. A lot of us may feel like our time and attention is not our own and can easily disappear into the ether of work and the internet. But rather than merely suggesting a digital detox, in her book, Jenny O'Dell presents a third way. She draws on ecology, art, labor history, literature, and explores the seeking of a deeper kind of attention. An attention that probes our sense of selfhood, our relationship to place, time, and other species. An attention that reminds us of our being animal on this planet. Here's producer Justine Paradise speaking with Jenny O'Dell. In 2016, Jenny had just moved to an apartment in Oakland, California, and she decided to make it a point to get to know her neighbors. They have this, if I'm not in the living room so they can't see me, they will fly over on the roof corner that's like just outside my window and kind of like stare at me like, okay, where's my snack? Wait, like looking for you? Yeah. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) These neighbors, by the way, are crows, who you can sometimes actually hear in the background of this interview. Jenny had learned that crows can come to recognize human faces, and they're intelligent by human standards of intelligence. Four years is a while to be friends with a bird. 
Yeah. I mean, and it's funny to think about like that first year, like I, I couldn't even get them to stop here. And then it was a really big deal when they landed on the balcony. That took like a really long time. And then now I have, we have this like wooden bowl that has like rocks and pine cones and stuff in it. And I, I started like hiding a peanut in there and they seem to really enjoy that. But that's like on the table, like really close to the door. Then there was like one day where they took the peanut from somewhere else and they put it in the bowl, which was very confusing to me. I was like, this is backwards. Um, and then now it's a very advanced game where I put what peanut is under a small silver bowl that's upside down in the bigger bowl. Um, oh yeah, and they're they're very into that. This was again in 2016. And by the end of that year, Donald Trump had been elected president. It was a high anxiety moment for a lot of people, including Jenny. And in her relationship with social media, she was not in a good place. You know, caught in a loop of urgency and reaction, you know, what we would now call doom scrolling. I don't know if we had that term (laughs) at the time. Um, A very claustrophobic way of being, it felt like. And to just look at them and sort of see myself from their perspective was so therapeutic to me at the time. It was like being reminded that I am an animal um, and that it's being viewed by another animal that itself has a completely different understanding probably of space and time um, and what even a place means, right? Like I think a lot about what, what, what this hill looks like to them. It's a completely different map. Around the same period, Jenny also found herself spending a lot of time in the Rose Garden in Oakland a spot just five minutes from her house, officially called the Morecambe Amphitheater of Roses. It's um, a little bit unusual because it's it's got a very sort of labyrinthine quality. Um, it's um, and it's and it's very close to um, you know a lot of more kind of urban feeling stuff. So it's a little kind of little pocket that's hidden away. Um, and so I was going there and kind of sitting and and quote unquote doing nothing. Um, and then inevitably started thinking about, like, why. She told me being there felt instinctual. Around the same time, there was also the ghost ship fire in Oakland, a disaster at a warehouse in which dozens of people died. A lot of artists and, um, you know, pe- friends of friends uh, passed away in that fire. So it was at a concert, right? Uh, yeah, it was like a show, like underground show. Um, and so there was just there, it was just a lot <laughs> to deal with at that time. Um, for me, I think one of the most important parts of this idea of kind of not trying to do something for some amount of time is that these things that you notice, they kind of flood in. So one of the things that became noticeable to me was the importance of a space like that, a space where you are not a customer, um, you're not a performer, (laughs) um, you know, you're just... A, a, a visitor um, and the and there's something about things like you know public parks and libraries that to me are very inspiring in terms of like um, spaces of like recuperation but also like inspiration and, and fellow feeling right with other humans and, and non-humans As Jenny was starting to get to know the crows and trying not to doom scroll she was also invited to give a talk at a conference called IO which exists kind of at the border of art and technology. This talk eventually became the first chapter of her book, and it started from that question she'd been asking herself in the Rose Garden. Why did nothing feel so necessary? What did she even mean by nothing? I I mean, nothing is such a complicated word already by itself, right? And I, 
Um, I, I kind of tried to set up early in the book that by my nothing only appears as nothing from a certain point of view. Um, and that point of view would be one in which productivity sort of equals work output per unit of time, maybe, um, or capitalism informed notions of what you know progress and growth mean. And so that kind of view of progress and productivity would tend to see a lot of the types of activities and attention that I'm advocating for as nothing because they don't produce anything. Um, mm. And and often I think also are um, maybe difficult to commodify, um, difficult to verbalize, to use like a kind of dumb example. It's like something that's uninstagrammable, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> it's like you just experienced it and then it was gone and you don't, you don't quote, have anything to show for it. Um, even though to me, like those are some of the most meaningful moments in life. So um, yeah, by nothing, I, I'm, you know, sort of tongue in cheek, like it's obviously not nothing to me. One thing I really appreciate about Jenny's book is that it's not prescriptive. She's not telling you specifically and definitively what nothing is, or despite the title, how to do nothing exactly. But in other interviews, she said that going on a walk is maybe a representative example. Approached a certain way, a walk doesn't have a purpose. The goal of the walk isn't to finish the walk. Being on the walk is an end in and of itself. How could a walk be efficient? Often you're choosing the least efficient path, the most wandering and circuitous. And then as for attention. I mean, I remain endlessly fascinated with how much there is to notice. And that's that's kind of the artist in me talking a little bit. But I think that we've all had experiences where something or someone pointed something out to us that was right in front of us. And then it's life changing because then you notice it for the rest of your life, right? Like um, that's happened for me with birds, right? Like the idea that before 2016, I was pointing my eyes at all of these very same birds probably. And I, I'm not sure what I saw. Like I probably just saw birds or I didn't see anything at all. And that's, you know, um, kind of mind blowing to me. So it's for me, it's tied to um, choice and direction. So you can choose to direct your attention. You can choose to notice something, including things like you can choose to try to notice what you haven't noticed, which I think is kind of the most important form of that. Social media is, is a big example in your book. Um, like these days, the science of our attention is really well studied and sort of employed to our disadvantage specifically on social media, which takes advantage of our psychology, our need for dopamine hits. Um, so withdrawing your attention and resisting the attention economy feels like it's a skill, um, like something we almost need to be trained in, but um, but it also feels so monumental. Um, but I also want to point out that it, like this line of thinking can also feel kind of basic, like, you know, social media is rotting the millennial brains. Um, in the kids these days, but but your book goes a lot further than that. Like it, you're not saying, buy some land, retreat, uh, turn on, tune in, drop out, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the idea of a social media is not something that I have a problem with, um, and I would consider you know pre digital things like gossip to be a form of a social network. <laughs> um, you know, like there's nothing wrong with. Um, wanting to be connected to other people and share information. That seems like a very basic human thing to me. Right? Even wanting to like share entertaining things with your friends, right? Um, 
to me, the problem arises like pretty specifically from the structure of the social media, mainstream social media platforms that we do use where certain types of expression um, are favored. Um, and then that really has a snowball effect um, on top of, as you mentioned, you know, this kind of uh, really nefarious attention on their part to like how um, psychology works and how to keep a user on a platform as much as possible. For example, the infinite scroll is one of these techniques that plays on our psychology. There's no bottom. There's always more to see. Or eye-catching notifications, videos that automatically start to play as you try to pass by. Like slot machines at a casino, researchers have found that these stimuli literally trigger the same parts of the brain as an addictive substance. And so it's like these kind of structural things about commercialized social media that I, I have a problem with. I think it's a little bit unreasonable to ask someone to stop paying a certain type of attention without suggesting another type of attention. So, you know, like, for me, I started paying attention to ecology and specifically to birds, and that that is so, <laughs> that is so absorbing to me that um, it's addictive in its own way. Um, and so it's not like I suddenly gained this ability to not be absorbed in anything. It's that I was able to find something that made me feel more kind of in the world rather than out of it. Um, and also was kind of able to help me break out of these cycles of, you know, anxiety and despair and these kind of feelings that are really driving the attention economy. Yeah, I mean, one one thing that you have said is that a reason to do nothing is that, quote, it's a reminder that you're alive. Um, so I, I feel like what the book does is sort of explain why it's important to sort of withdraw your attention and what it means for our collective life as well as our individual life. Um, and nature and ecology feel like one of the means to do that and perhaps like a, a critical one. Um, but I wonder if you can explain like what is what is the importance of nature and ecology in withdrawing attention or retraining it? Um, I th- I think, you know, for me in the book, it sort of functions as both like a metaphor and as as like a subject in this content. Like I think as a metaphor, ecology is really useful for me in thinking about context, the role of context. Um, so, you know, you can't look at any supposed entity in ecology without starting to notice how interconnected it is with so many other things, right? Like one of my favorite examples is like the way fungus interacts with trees and like at the point of contact like you know sometimes the the fungal bits kind of are like almost in the tree right like it's it's very hard to separate them even like functionally you know and I I mentioned in the book I am biracial and so it's you know I like thinking about these kind of um, in-between zones or things like atmospheric rivers that bring water you know from the Philippines to where I am um, and it just really, I think it teaches you how to look at and appreciate complexity um, and really sit with that, which to me feels like the opposite of how a lot of information circulates on social media. Um, so that's, you know, the kind of metaphor part of it. But then I think just as a, a subject of looking, I mean, yesterday I was reading um, a book, actually I was reading a book about quantum physics, uh, for, for someone who doesn't know anything about it, um, and was having my mind blown in that way. And then this bee, like, came over <laughs> to where I was sitting, like a, like a, one of those really big bumblebees. <laughs> and this bench I was sitting at happened, to, it's very kind of ensconced in a plant. So my point being, like, the bee is, like, right next to me, and it was just kind of... <laughs> 
making the rounds of his plant and I was just like in B universe for a while. Like I was just looking at its eyes and then I realized I had never looked at the flowers on that plant because I, I don't know, it doesn't look like that interesting of a plant, but when a bee is like, you know, when you see it from the perspective of the bee, it looks completely different. Jenny grew up around San Francisco, actually in Cupertino, where the Apple campus is now located. And How to Do Nothing is specifically rooted in the Bay Area and engaging with the idea of becoming a citizen in one's place. For me, I think it's just like, uh, it's a familiarity, just like you would be familiar with a person. Um, It's a familiarity with the character of a place. Um, And and I think my my reading of it is informed by kind of what I talk about in the book, which is the, the experience of growing up in the Bay Area without knowing it, without knowing what the Bay Area is until, you know, basically right before I wrote this book. As Jenny got to know the nature of the Bay Area, she writes about an experience that I think many of us have probably felt, that a connection with nature can bring a welcome sense of our own smallness, our own membership in a community that is bigger than human and bigger than this time. So the landscape is a community, um, it has these relationships, and you are, you are a member of that community, and you have responsibility to that community. Where a profile on social media centers the user, nature breaks down the idea of an individual self, of a species, of human constructions in general. My favored version of bioregionalism is one that actually makes the, the notion of boundaries and borders absurd. Um, and I think that's what you see both with the tree roots and the fungus, but also things like weather and um, migration, um, successional stages, right? Like there's a place I really like to hike that has a bunch of bay trees and manzanita, and there's a a really lovely sign that basically tells you like, if you come back in a hundred years, it's not going to look like this Um, (laughs) because there are stages, right? In these places, nothing is frozen. Um, And so that's, you know, when you observe the character of a place, like it's always a moment in time. In a way, an engagement with the local ecosystem is a reframing device, a mechanism that makes it possible to notice things we haven't noticed before, to literally see something from a different perspective. Like for instance, when Jenny decided to reacquaint herself with the Calabasas Creek, which had existed in the background for her growing up, she decided to visit it at different points along its journey, leaving the channels in which people move, like the sidewalk and the street, and following the water where it had been directed into a concrete channel and where it flowed behind a strip mall. And I remember looking up out of the creek and just seeing the back of like Bank of America. Almost like looking at the back of a piece of embroidery. She saw it from the water's point of view. But this is just one of many possible reframing devices. Nature, I feel like, is um, it's just one of the tools that you talk about, um, and you turn a lot to art. I wonder if you can talk about John Cage, um, who is the composer most famous for 433, which brings audiences into you know a music hall and seats them for you know four minutes of silence, um, and is often sort of like almost made a joke of, like, oh, this is this contemporary art gimmick. But um, but how do you see John Cage? Yeah, it is very easy to see that piece that way. And I I should also add, I think he he had a really great sense of humor. Um so um, <laughs> That's good to there's, hear. there's a real sense of like playfulness and humor and irony in his work and so um which I really love. But 
Yeah, I I feel like John Cage for me is, um, you know, on the level of sound, like one of the best examples of how an artist can kind of create an architecture of attention so they can set up these kind of parameters and conditions in which um, you, the listener, or the participant will hear sounds and notice sounds that you would not have otherwise. And so, you know, my personal experience of that was um, going to see a John Cage piece performed at the San Francisco Symphony. It wasn't 433, um, but it was a kind of, um, it, it was a composition that involved three vocalists and um, a couple of other musicians, all of whom were dressed in plain clothes, which was, you know, really strange to see at the symphony. Um, and the score had lots of kind of chance operations in it. So the liner notes said, you know, uh, this will last anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes, depending on what happens. Um, and there was lots of things like shuffling cards or Michael Tilson Thomas, the conductor, uh, making a milkshake and a blender. Um, and, you know, just all, uh, all kinds of interesting sounds being considered as part of this musical composition. And it had two really interesting effects on me. One was to notice things about the symphony hall that I had never noticed before. Like, um, like usually all of the musicians wear black. Um, usually people in the audience don't laugh. Um, you know, this kind of, it, it highlighted the whole structure of the performance itself. And then I walked outside and I just realized that I could hear I could hear everything better, or I could hear everything. <laughs> Something's probably for the first time, really. Um, this whole kind of composition that's going on all the time with like the buses and people walking and, um, you know, just all everything that's been going on this whole time that I did not have access to, like perceptually. So. Um, you know, I don't think I ever heard anything the same way after that, and that sounds like an exaggeration, but it's not. It, it permanently changed the way that I hear things, and, and that's one of the reasons that I find that kind of art to be so generous, um, because I think it, it puts new things in the world for you, uh, and it makes your experience richer, and it gives you more access to the things that are around you. More from Jenny O'Dell when Outside In continues. I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock-up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nuh-uh. Hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew. Grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm. Sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get Shipped same-day delivery. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash high. Saving money on everything for your projects. Now at Menards. We have it all for garden and landscaping essentials. Visit our outdoor garden center today and update your backyard space. Grid accents lattice panels have a timeless design with an innovative design that's simple to install and requires almost no maintenance. Save big on lattice panel options at Menards. View our entire selection of garden center products today on Menards.com. Save big money at whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. 
The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. And today on the show, a conversation with Jenny O'Dell, artist and author of How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. For Jenny, engaging with place and ecology also meant taking on a responsibility to that place. She wrote, It's important for me to link my critique of the attention economy to the promise of bioregional awareness because I believe that capitalism, colonialist thinking, loneliness, and an abusive stance toward the environment all co-produce one another. Here's Justine Paradise. The idea of an eight-hour workday is the product of a labor movement beginning in the mid-1800s. It advanced the radical idea that people deserve eight hours to work, eight hours to rest, and eight hours for what you will. Jenny quotes Samuel Gompers, a 19th-century labor group leader who, side note, was also pretty racist. Gompers wrote, quote, What does labor want? It wants the earth and the fullness thereof. But the eight-hour workday is far from universal. I would say it is not an ideal honored by contemporary work culture. The gig economy can turn any available minute to a potential earning opportunity. Performance-based jobs reward productivity and even punish the lack thereof. And meanwhile, work emails ping their way into dinner time. Social media might be a way to connect with friends, but it becomes, unwittingly or not, a personal brand. And ideals of self-optimization can make even meditation competitive. In this culture, Jenny writes, quote, attention may be the last thing we have left to withdraw. You point to a couple examples of people, um, like both real people from history, um, whether they're mythologized a little bit, um, but also <laughs> fictional characters who have refused. Um, and I think one of my favorite moments is when you talked about Bartleby the Scrivener. Um, how did Bartleby refuse? Can you tell the story about Bartleby? Sure. So um, Bartleby is is the character from uh, the Melville short story, uh, Bartleby the Scrivener, who's famous for saying, I would prefer not to. Um, I actually have a tote bag that says I would prefer not to um, because it's, it's <laughs> Melville House. He was monetized. House. Yeah, that's <laughs> Melville House's uh, is tote bag and they're my publisher. Um, oh, wow. And I actually was wearing it on a walk and this woman was driving by and she rolled down her window and she was like, Bartleby. <laughs> So clearly people associate Bartleby with, with this um, phrase, as they should. But uh, Bartleby is a, a copyist um, uh, who is asked to copy something um, by his boss and uh, keeps saying, I would prefer not to. And there's never really an explanation. Um, and it's told from the point of view of the boss, who's just completely perplexed. Um, and, and the thing that I find so magical about that phrase is... Um, it's not I won't. Um, it's not I will, and it's not I won't. Um, it's I would prefer not to. And you know, I think it's worth noting that the boss was not asking about his preference. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like his preference was not a part of the equation. So, uh, so not only is he not doing it, he's also completely refusing the terms of the question, which I think is a much wider form of refusal, um, and is so helpful as a sort of model of engagement or disengagement, whatever you want to call it. 
an important word also in the title of your book is resist. Um, and you, you really tie um, this, this idea of doing nothing to a history of labor and work and the commodification, not only of our, you know, spaces, um, including the internet, but also our time and our days. Um, can you talk about why um, resistance and refusal is tied to the reclaiming of attention? I mean, I just see it as um, a kind of preliminary step that leads to other forms of action. So I would never, <laughs> I would never say that doing nothing, as I'm describing in the book, is itself activism. For example, um, I think I describe it at some point as like a, a way station <laughs> uh, on the way there. <laughs> um, I like to think about this kind of initial step of unlinking one's own forms of thinking um, and value from the sort of capitalist ether and the culture of, you know, personal branding and optimization as like, again, a first step that might then allow you to notice different kinds of things, um, notice different actors in your environment, um, maybe begin to seek more context um, and reach out and form different kinds of networks that feel more intentional um or to simply just rest right like um which i think a lot of people are just denied rest um and i think the tricky thing is um on the one hand like i'm i find that promising and i think i am addressing a person an individual um within the space that they have to redirect their attention at the same time that i have to acknowledge that not everyone has the same amount of that space or kind of that space like I don't want to fall into the self-help bucket of like, just, just do it. Right. Um, just, <laughs> just do nothing. Yeah. Just do nothing. Right. It's like, that's, you know, not possible. I mean, I feel like there's, um, there's kind of a caricature of like how this idea could be used with the, you know, disillusioned tech founder who has inventor's remorse, who discovers meditation, <laughs> you know, and discovers says, you know, like use mindfulness to self-optimize at his retreat center. Um, and it's like, almost any of these ideas can be kind of just taken and then like rebranded or monetized. Oh yeah. Believe me. I know <laughs> yeah, forest bathing retreats or something. <laughs> yeah. And I, I was like, honestly kind of biting my nails, like when the book came out, cause I, it was so ripe for that. Right. I was like, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, I think maybe one of the things that would resist that maybe, um, is that I think I, I put a lot of emphasis in the book on, um, both gathering context and humility, because I see those as um, as combined, um, you know, to seek context on something is to admit that you don't know the whole story. You need more information. Um, you're not sure. You need the expertise of other people who have come before you, you know, whether that's simply like the history of activism in your area or simply like ways that you have been complicit in something without realizing it. Like, it's kind of like, again, it's the thing that's been right in front of you the whole time, uh, kind of dynamic. Um, and then, and then sort of with that same humility, like asking, what can I do to be of support? Um, like, how do, how can I fit into this? Um, how can I be useful? <laughs> I say useful, right? Not <laughs> useful in a different way <laughs> than the sort of, uh, uh, a useful tree. Um, but yeah, I think that that's, um, for me, there's like a big difference between that and being like, I just discovered meditation, <laughs> um, you know. Who has the time and luxury to say, I would prefer not to? I 
you know, can't speak for other people. Like I, I have the experience that I have. One book that I was um, really struck by, I think last year is On the Clock by Emily Gwendolsberger, uh, where she works at an Amazon fulfillment center, a call center and a McDonald's, um, kind of similar to Nickel and Dimed. I really, really recommend that book um, because that will show you, you know, this kind of horrible calculus of like survival, right? Where it's like not just being worked extremely hard on the job, but then, you know, the commute um, and then trying to just rest enough to be able to do that job, right? So like that's a situation with like little to no temporal autonomy, no time. Um, I would imagine not a lot of attention to to spare. Um, and I and I do also find it really inspiring the examples that she gives in that book of of ways that even though you know people are not allowed to talk to each other on the warehouse floor, for example, like the the little ways that people find around that, um, or like you know she sneaks in earpods um, one day so that she can like listen to something, right? So anyway, I I I would point to things like that that are um, more informed about that kind of life experience than than mine. In the book. Jenny's Rose Garden is both a literal example of the kind of space we need to do nothing and a metaphor for the space we need on a more psychological and sociological level. It's an example of a kind of space where a person can just exist, not as a worker or performer or as a customer, user or audience member, where you don't have to buy something to feel like you have the right to be there. These spaces are increasingly rare and under threat both the literal ones like libraries and parks, and more abstractly, things like free time, the right to fall asleep in public. Take even stopping to look at a bird in the public space of a sidewalk. Not too unusual, but not not unusual either. You might be standing still, your head tilted, staring off into space, maybe peering into a bush. But this kind of behavior can get people into trouble, some people more than others. Think about Christian Cooper, the black birder in Central Park, when a white woman called the police on him after he asked her to leash her dog. In fact, saying I would prefer not to arguably doesn't even work out for Bartleby. I'm going to tell you how the story ends. His boss is so dumbfounded by his refusal that he ends up moving offices. Bartleby takes up residence there. But when the new tenants move in, eventually he's jailed, and he dies in prison. Personally, I read I would prefer not to, as another example of a reframing device, like John Cage, or viewing the neighborhood from the point of view of a creek. The I would prefer not to uh, kind of approach for me is to just, you know, A, be very aware of oneself and, you know, that platform and the ways that it's sort of working upon you. Things like anger and shame and loneliness, like these are things that, you know, very quickly can like fuel your interactions with with social media. The other part of it is kind of like taking the center of gravity and moving it, you know, out of that and into the world around you um, and these kind of more specific um, context-filled connections that you have with people or with a place, um, with other beings. Um, that, that That is, for me, like, that is what will anchor you. I, I just... I'm suspicious of the the digital detox kind of rhetoric for so many reasons, but that's one of them. It's like I think if you want it to if you want to truly shift your relationship, it's it's gonna have to be about something bigger than that. In the introduction of How to Do Nothing, Jenny reflects on the story of Old Survivor, that five hundred year old redwood in Oakland, 
and the Taoist story of the useless tree, writing, The shape of the useless tree does more than just protect it from the carpenter. It's also the shape of care, of branching out over the thousands of animals who seek shelter, thus providing the grounds for life itself. I want to imagine a whole forest of useless trees, branches densely interwoven, providing an impenetrable habitat for birds, snakes, insects, squirrels, fungi, and lichen. And eventually, through his generous, shaded, and useless environment, might come a weary traveler from the land of usefulness, a carpenter who has laid down his tools. Maybe after a bit of dazed wandering, he might take a cue from the animals and have a seat beneath an oak tree. Maybe, for the first time ever, he'd take a nap. That was writer and artist Jenny O'Dell, author of How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy, which came out in paperback in December of 2020. This episode of Outside In was produced by Justine Paradise with help from Taylor Quimby and me, Sam Evans-Brown. Erica Janik is our executive producer. Maureen McMurray is the director of Pond Skating. Music from Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Did they ever bring you things? They have not brought me anything except one time I wrapped a peanut in some foil just to see if they could get it out. Um, and they did. And then they they like made the foil into a little ball and they put it back in the bowl. Uh. <laughs> I was like, how polite. Thank you. <laughs> Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.